I do have some concerns with how uh, sort of cozy he is with cop unions. That's not something that I really particularly like as a libertarian. But I do think to a degree, this is a sort of referendum on a lot of the much more radical parts of the progressive left. And this is a response by New Yorkers who are basically saying, hey, our public spaces need to be safer. We need somebody who's going to prioritize that and take that seriously. My simple way of looking at this right now is I wouldn't want to be accused of a crime in a red state, and I wouldn't want to be a victim of a crime in a blue state. Uh, And (laughs) that's basically where I come down to it right now. (laughs) Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Liz Wolf. And Liz comes to us from Reason Magazine, and she's going to be filling in for Corey and Ricky today because they are out. Let's get started. Citigroup is roiling lawmakers in Texas by offering to fund employees out-of-state abortions. We'll discuss the firestorm around that move. And most of the office is out this week, so I'm free to talk about Eric Adams as much as I want. We'll look at the growing fight between him and the progressives to his left. And the Ukrainian port city of Mariupol is under brutal siege from Russian forces. We'll give an update on the balance of military power there and the many millions of Ukrainians who have fled the conflict. But let's start by checking in on the gray lady. The New York Times editorial board put out a lengthy opinion piece Friday declaring plain and simple that America has a free speech problem. Much of what they have to say, that people should be allowed to speak their minds, ask questions, even make mistakes, isn't exactly controversial, or at least it shouldn't be. But here you have a paper, one that shrunk from those ideals over the past few years, trying to reassert itself. I'm curious, Liz, what you made of this piece and just the general context in which it hit. I found it to be a fairly uh, generic and sort of milk toast piece. It really does feel like New York Times, uh, now they're at the party, but they came awfully late to it. This is something that many of us have been talking about and and very concerned about for the better part of like six or seven years. And it's cool that the the New York Times editorial ultimately was sort of a collection and a synthesis of of data that they'd gotten from their readers uh, that indicated that lots and lots of sort of like elite uh, intelligent leftists also believe that this is a problem. So this isn't just something that's You know, something that people with beliefs like me, libertarian beliefs, or people who read National Review feel, this is something that people like New York Times readers are also reacting to. But I do think the reaction among much of the left really indicated just how uh, crazy they've gone and sort of how far over their skis they've gotten. Yeah, let me let me layer in some data here that the New York Times cited. So, fifty five percent of respondents in this poll uh, held said that they held their tongue at some point recently. Only thirty four percent of Americans said that they uh, enjoy free speech completely. Eighty four percent said that they have serious or somewhat serious problems, uh, or they uh, they observe a serious or somewhat serious problem of people not being able to speak freely because of free uh, fear of retaliation. And this was true among Democrats, Republicans, Independents. It was true no matter the race uh, of the person in the poll. And the what was interesting to me was that the the op ed uh, or the opinion piece, you know, basically went in to say. Of the different subpopulations in this poll, actually, black respondents were more felt more free to speak their minds, but they didn't even reach a majority of respondents saying that they felt free to speak their minds. And they were also in the 80-something percent saying that people are, are worried about retaliation when they're speaking. The thing that was really fascinating about, about all of that was that it shows um, that this is like a very widespread phenomenon. This is something that people of a lot of different ages and a lot of different sectors feel, people of a lot of different races. And I do think it's also important whenever people talk about this, they kind of collapse. They, they do a lot of definitional collapse that I think doesn't serve the conversation well. 
There are ultimately, I mean, different levels of severity here. There's a huge difference and a huge distinction that I make between government suppression of speech, which is much, much, much more serious. And we do see some of that happening versus this sort of cultural norms of free speech eroding, the sense of culturally we're perhaps not treasuring these ideals and giving people much birth to speak their opinions the way that we used to. And so I think it's it's worth separating those things out as well as being really clear about the consequences that are incurred. Sometimes this results in self-censorship and people choosing not to say certain things. There's also you know, people who are getting fired for things that they say or for things that, um, you know, they've done in the past for old tweets that are dug up by people who, you know, are have all kinds of professional jealousy and sort of have decided that there's these people have targets on their backs. There's also other situations where people in our industry, people in media and journalism are trying to basically have a sort of uh, academic treatment of a subject that they deem worthy and that their editors have deemed worthy. But then people uh sort of imagine and and have this popular notion that they said something that they didn't. We saw that sort of happen with my my friend and the writer Jesse Single, where he, you know, did a long uh, feature story uh, for The Atlantic, a cover story on um, youth transitioning and transgender issues. And that became a huge problem among lots of the uh, transgender activists left because they were basically alleging that he had said things or believed things that he did not allege by nature of his reporting on this. And there was actually a great piece a couple of years ago, or at least I think it was earlier this year um, or in 2021 by Kathy Young in Bulwark, where she uh, basically catalogs what she views as cancel culture and like what are the different contours of this. And she points out that, of course, part of this culture of free speech that you're talking about is the ability to push back, right? Like, like people you know, they should have the freedom to say, I think your views are offensive. I think your views are wrong and all that. And that needs to be protected in the culture as anything else. But then she went beyond that and said, look, uh, this is a problem that's getting worse. And it's getting worse for a couple of reasons. One is just the scale and the speed of the internet. So, you know, we now have situations where somebody who's, you know, getting on an airplane to go to South Africa and makes uh, the wrong joke or at least is trying, you know, we can interpret what she was trying to do this woman. But, you know, it could be sitting on an airplane and thousands or hundreds of thousands of people are commenting on her uh, her tweet, something that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. Um, but there's also shifting definitions of even what racism and sexism and homophobia really are. Uh, and then there's this sense that words are violent, something that I hear among a lot of my friends on the left all the time, where now we're, we've moved well beyond the you know fire in a crowded theater type definition of speech that's harmful, where there's like an imminent threat to now where Almost anything that hurts somebody's feelings are being categorized as threatening speech. I also think there's an incentives component to this, which I think a lot of these people who engage in these sort of online mobs or exert pressure on people's employers to fire them, I think a lot of these people are aware of the power they now wield uh, in large numbers. I think that this is a way of getting ahead sometimes professionally for people. I think this is a way of feeling moral and righteous. Uh, and I almost sometimes wonder whether it's almost like a ritualistic, like a purity type exercise where they feel as though their sins are washed clean when they uh, sort of bring people to trial and, and try to indict them for the things that they've done. I also do think this is happening like at a moment in our culture when we're seeing a lot of uh, increased attention given to things like trauma, and we sort of have this like medicalizing language that we now use. And so sort of on the same topic of words equaling violence, we're also seeing people 
for in ways that are good and bad, talk about trauma and sort of the the trauma that different situations of being microaggressed against or misunderstood or misrepresented. Um, you know, people are talking about the impact that it's had on them more. And I think that allows people to sometimes use that in good faith ways, but also sometimes to weaponize that in very bad faith ways. Yeah. And people on the left are often, often ask me when I talk about this kind of stuff to be like, well, then name the examples. And so I'm just going to give a few examples here so people know at least what I'm concerned about here. One is actually something specific to the work that I was doing over the past few years. You know, I was running this group called Arena, which was a progressive space. And not a week would go by where I didn't have to deal with some kind of attempt to suppress speech across the progressive landscape. And one notable... Uh, example was in May of 2020. And and to be clear, this wasn't something that happened within Arena, but was something that happened um, amongst members of our community who were involved in the sort of data and analytics space. There was this guy named David Shore, who is a Democratic uh, data analyst who um, in May 2020, if you remember what was happening around there, this was the sort of aftermath of uh, the murder of George Floyd. He, David Shore, was working for a Democratic data firm and tweeted out a study that uh, suggested that after the riots uh, post MLK's death, uh, turnout for Democratic candidates went down. And it was actually a study done by an African-American scholar. And Shore merely tweeted this thing out. And because of that, he was fired from his job. And not only was he fired from his job, but there were all these these Democratic data circles and listservs and stuff like that. One of them kicked him off of it. And if you go back and read about this, you'll see all the stuff we're talking about, like the sense of people performing for each other, shifting definitions of what it means to, to be violent, right? Like there was implications that he was violent for merely citing the study. Meanwhile, this is his job is to think about, hey, like how do we like world events, choices we make, different like policies we advocate for. How does that affect turnout in an election? Is like something squarely within his job and he was fired for that. And I think what that does is not only does that stifle his speech, but anybody else within this work, like for instance, me, I was starting to see the you know, language around, and I'm a commu- I was a communications professional in democratic politics who was responsible for training thousands of future communications professionals. What I saw in that situation was this is not a safe place to point out, hey, maybe there's some problems with the way we're talking about defunding the police. You know, Maybe when I go outside my door in Manhattan and I see privileged kids from Williamsburg breaking into Bangladeshi jeweler stores in the name of, of civil rights, maybe I'm not going to point out the problems with that because it's not worth my time. It will cost me my profession. And then what winds up happening is we don't have a robust debate about that. And <laughs> Democrats wind up losing uh, elections because they, they're not able to allow for the kind of dissent needed to kind of parse through these issues. Absolutely. There's, there's a phenomenon that we're seeing where people, I think mostly on the left right now, are shooting themselves in the foot by um, not recognizing some of the like the polling data that is out there in terms of how a lot of Democratic voters react to this type of thing, a lot of in terms of how a lot of minority voters react. You know, ultimately, I, you, you sometimes go back to the uh, all the the political squabbling we've had over the term uh, Latinx. And about how odd it is because some 3% of actual Latino people, like Hispanic and Latino people, actually identify with and use that term and prefer it, which means like 97% of them think that's a little bit uh, absurd or they've never heard it before or it's not something that they really identify with. And so it's like as as we engage in these sort of linguistic shifts that I think oftentimes are sort of created by like pretty elite institution bred white liberals, it's like, okay, well, who exactly is being served by this type of thing? Who is being served not only by that linguistic shifting, 
but also by our inability to look at actual polling data on like, is defund the police a, a popular concept. Which B, is, not, is it a popular yeah. slogan? Like, like is it is are the things that are wrapped up in that popular policy solutions that will actually work and achieve desired outcomes? And then also, is that the appropriate way of packaging that concept? And on both counts, it's not. And we have good evidence that indicates that. When people ignore that, they ignore that at their own peril. Well, on the Latinx front, not only is it unpopular, uh, only a few percentage of people who are Latin American descent use the term, but a whole 40% of people, and this was from a political poll in 2021, uh, who are of Latin American descent are actually offended by the term. So more, you know, <laughs> some many, many orders of magnitude, more people who are part of that community are offended by this term that certain segments of the left are saying we must use now. Um, but before we wrap up, I think there are a few things to point out. One is obviously, I have to put my progressive hat on and say this is definitely a problem among the right. It was true going all the way back to the Dixie Chicks who were canceled and you know disc jockeys were fired for even playing their music to you know how the right has treated people like David French who chooses to uh, point out you know Trump's many failings uh, or Liz Cheney and then obviously that the term cancel culture can be appropriated in like super dishonest ways like Putin is saying he's being canceled and so this is like where like I, I truly believe that certain people need to be held accountable like the Harvey Weinstein's of the world and that there's certain good things about this debate about cancel culture but at the same time um, that there is this mass, massive problem on the left that that too many people aren't self-reflective about absolutely and we're seeing right now you know in many state legislatures there being a certain I don't know if can- cancel culture I don't think is the appropriate term but on a liberal mindset that's that's really being reflected in some of the laws that uh, Republican lawmakers are passing, especially related to school curriculum. You know, there's a lot of talk about critical race theory and talking about gender and sexuality and what will will or will not be taught in schools. And it's difficult. Like like curriculum decisions are difficult. And I tend to believe they ought to be left to a much more local level with all the different stakeholders involved as opposed to done at the, the state legislature level. But we are seeing like this incredible reactive illiberalism related to these lawmakers saying X or Y cannot be mentioned in a classroom. And it's like, well, wait a second. I thought we generally believed in this idea of federalism and localism, an idea that, you know, parents ought to have a lot of say in that and they ought to make those decisions with other stakeholders. And the more we drill down to that local level, as opposed to having government officials involve themselves in that, the more reflective that will be of the community's actual values. And we ought to, in general, expand the Overton window so that kids in an age-appropriate way can be exposed to all kinds of ideas so that they can sift through that and determine what's true. And let me let me just end on this, which is that this is not just a question of elite circles, right? This is a question of everyday people. So from that same Kathy Young article I mentioned before, she cites a few examples of just people in normal life having issues with free speech here. She talked about in 2017, a burrito shop opened by two Portland women was forced to shut down shortly after its launch because its white owners basically uh, talked about collecting uh, recipes in Mexico uh, that they were using and they were denounced for, quote, stealing and culinary white supremacy, et cetera. In June 2020, uh, during the civil rights unrest following the Floyd murder, a Denver chain of yoga studios, Kindness Yoga, was driven out of business uh, because people said that their statement in solidarity with Black Lives Matter was too little too late. They did have a statement in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. I guess it just didn't come fast enough and didn't say enough. And in July 2020, a curator of a art museum in San Francisco um, was fired after or stepped down after staffers circulated a petition demanding his uh, removal for, quote, toxic white supremacist beliefs. Uh, his offense was to say that they were going to continue to uh, hold 
uh, art from white artists, not obviously only white artists, but he said, hey, we don't, when he used the word reverse discrimination to say we don't want to have reverse discrimination, that apparently was enough to get him fired. So the point is, this is about everyday life. It's not just about the newsrooms in major publications or elite universities. Yeah, I think it's, you know, one of the examples that I always come back to, and it, it hits very close to home, is the example of my my very dear friend, Nancy Rommelman, and her husband, Din. For a long time, Din ran a chain of of wonderful, a local chain of, of coffee shops uh, named Ristretto Roasters in the Portland area. And Nancy, uh, who, you know, was somewhat professionally involved with that, but is a working journalist, uh, in the height of the Me Too movement, began to publish a video series called Me Neither, where she basically from a sort of feminist Gen X type perspective, cast some doubt on some of the um, the fury that people, the, the things that people are getting swept up in with Me Too and basically saying, hey, we need to draw some important distinctions between serial abusers who um, should be held criminally, should, should be held accountable in a court of law for what they did, like Harvey Weinstein versus people like Louis C.K. or Aziz Ansari, where their transgressions were perhaps um, significantly less bad or perhaps bring up interesting questions about consent and sexual mores and how those have shifted. You know, all of these are very reasonable things to discuss. Portland activists caught wind of this and decided not just to punish Nancy for her beliefs, but to um, drive her husband, Din's coffee shops, into financial ruin, ultimately meaning they lost out on hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, a, a business that he'd spent a decade building. Uh, it's a really tragic story. But to me, I always think, you know, that wasn't somebody just in media industry who was punished for this. This was her spouse who was, you know, completely th- these views are not even necessarily representative of views that he holds. And yet he still uh, bore the brunt of that in a way that I find really, really despicable. It's really sad. Wow. Yeah. And I I, I think of those two situations much, dif- much differently, like Aziz and Louis C.K., but I don't think we have enough time for that. <laughs> Let's move on to something uh, way less controversial. Let's talk about abortion. Absolutely. Uh, a Texas lawmaker is threatening to take action against Citigroup after the bank said it would cover travel expenses for employees who seek abortions outside of their state. Uh, City didn't name Texas in that filing, but the policy was a clear response to a new law in Texas from last year that bans abortions at six weeks of pregnancy. Just yesterday, Idaho followed suit with a similar law of their own. But before we get to any of those laws, let's start with the government versus private sector aspect of this in Texas. Liz, you're a libertarian. We call you Libertarian Liz around here. as a libertarian, uh, but who also has pretty strong feelings about abortion, how do you think about the private sector versus government aspect of this? This one's pretty easy for me. Um, my libertarianism really guides me toward the belief that companies ought to be able to decide what constitutes health care and what benefits they want to provide to their employees. In this area, to be extremely clear, I want no government intervention that bars Citibank from taking this action. I think it's a morally condemnable action, nonetheless. Uh, and and one that really continues to fold abortion into our culture as just another normal and necessary procedure akin to a root canal or akin to a, an appendectomy when it's nothing of the sort. But at the same time, I don't want any government infringement or any any law passed down from on high that would prevent this employer from deciding that they want to provide this for their employees. Yeah. And I know that's a weird it's a distinction that I think a lot of the times people struggle to hold both things at once. But I can believe that something is a really morally uh deeply upsetting and, and uh, transgressive and condemnable act while also believing that the government ought not step in here. And is somebody, you know, you live in two liberal cities, you live in New York and you live in Austin. Uh, what's your sort of experience with even debating or discussing the issue of abortion of people around you? Because I, I, I could imagine like when it comes up, things get heated pretty fast. I try to have it 
come up very rarely because I find that it's it's not super productive to discuss a lot of the time. People have very deeply held moral intuitions. And I always want to be sensitive to the reasons that people may have for holding those beliefs. Um, but one thing that really does bother me, I think there's a lot of rhetorical sleights of hand that people employ, especially on the pro-choice side. And it feels like it really obfuscates the things that I'm talking about and the things that I'm thinking about that are informing my pro-life positions. Like, for example, you know, I, I sort of hinted at it before, but the redefinition of abortion as essential health care, which has long been a rhetorical tactic of a lot of the left, is a falsehood in most cases. Abortion is a non-essential elective procedure, except in rare cases like an ectopic pregnancy. Uh, you know, and and some legislators uh, have been toying with the idea of also banning those. Uh, I think we have yet to see sort of how that will play out, and I'm I'm opposed to that. You know, ectopic pregnancies are very serious and can really threaten the life of the mother. Um, but generally speaking, I think it is important to always discuss the rule, not the exception with abortion, to not discuss cases, um, you know, you can at some point, but generally speaking, stop fixating on the cases of rape or incest, stop fixing on the cases of a medical abnormality or something threatening the life of the mother. Fixate on the the typical abortion as it is the the standard abortion as as it is often performed, which is oftentimes done in the first trimester or the beginning of the second trimester. It is often done actually statistically by women who are like not teenagers, by women in their like mid, late 20s, early 30s. It's done by women who are slightly older than I think we collectively imagine. Um, we see middle class women sort of gravitating toward this less. We see poor women and then we actually see pretty wealthy women also gravitating toward this. Uh, I think it's important that we be a little bit more realistic about who is getting abortions, at what stages, what does this look like, what is the sort of median abortion? Because I really think that that's where our debate should focus as opposed to focusing on every possible example but that, like, that, you know, in any way deviates from the norm. But it's like you're a libertarian, correct me if I'm wrong, like you're not necessarily like thinking of this as like, hey, like what's the percentage of people – uh, you know, taking advantage of this procedure, but like, what is this sort of the right at stake here? And like, what is the, you know, like, is this, you know, I, I know you don't characterize it necessarily this way, but is it murder? What is the autonomy question? What rights should people have? What right r rights does, does the, you know, the unborn baby have or the baby have or the embryo or however somebody wants to characterize it versus the, the woman carrying the pregnancy? And like even if it were 99% people who are billionaires taking this procedure, it wouldn't change the ultimate outcome for you. Yeah, right? absolutely not. I mean, for me, this fundamentally... Abortion operates in a category like no other. It's not akin to other forms of killing because it is just a fundamentally incredibly tricky thing. This is a situation where, uh, in my view, the rights of the baby um, really rub up against the rights of the mother. Those come into conflict with each other in a way that uh, is really, really fundamentally difficult to reconcile. I ultimately err on the side of more caution with this. I believe that life begins at conception in part because I think we societally and medically struggle to draw a clear line on when life begins. And I think in the absence of being able to clearly suss that out, to clearly suss out, oh, the heart having four chambers or a heartbeat existing or uh, it being viable and able to survive outside of the womb, in the absence of that, because we sort of all come down in different places, I really think what are we as a society if we're not erring on the side of protecting um, the innocent and the vulnerable members of our species. I, I find it to be really concerning. And I also think some of the sort of rhetorical obfuscation that we see happening really results in people not understanding what's happening at different stages of fetal development, which I actually think is really, really useful 
in terms of thinking about the personhood or or lack of personhood of a fetus. Like most people don't know that at like 11 weeks, uh, you know, it has fingernails, that a heartbeat can be detected or electrical currents can be detected at six weeks. But then there's some um, debate over that because ultimately the four chambers of the heart are sort of formed later, nine weeks, 10 weeks, that type of time. And so really heartbeat, depending on how you define it, is sort of detected anywhere from like six weeks to 10 weeks. Um, you know, the capacity to feel pain is is later on, but like the major organs are developing around 11 weeks. Like a lot of people aren't, and that's all solidly within the first trimester. A lot of people aren't aware of these things. And I think it's weird that we talk so much about abortion. There's so much airtime given to it, but very little time given to the actual like medical realities, which I think can hold some of the key to solving this for us. Yeah, it's, it's amazing because I've done multiple shows and, and interviews about the topic of abortion. And this is literally the first time anybody has even attempted to explain to me uh, the science or their theory behind when life begins. Uh, and the right does it very poorly because a lot of the times you can't trust their portrayal of it because there's such a clear agenda. And I can fully understand if your listeners also want to fact check me since I clearly yeah. have a point of view here. And I'll point out that I'm not equipped to do that. I'm not an expert yeah. on that. And I, I suspect that most of our listeners have heard the opposite of what you said is part of what I could take for granted, especially our podcast listeners who I think tend to skew a little bit more left than our, our YouTube listeners. But uh, my point here is not to like litigate everything you just said, but just to say like, Part of what I want to get at before we even get back to the Texas law is like how we get to the point where this conversation is so hard. So recently I, I've been um, just doing some reflecting on the issue of abortion because it's very personal to me because my mom actually had scheduled an abortion for me when I was – before I was born and uh, under the pressure from my father. The irony here being that my father is a conservative uh, anti-abortion uh, person and my mom is pro-choice liberal. She goes in to, to get the abortion that my father was pressuring her to have. Uh, and then she was sitting in the waiting room and she said God spoke to her and told her to leave. Now, I'm an atheist, so it's kind of a hard story for to wrap my head around. But it's even harder to wrap my head around because here you have um, total hypocrisy. In many ways, it was my first political experience, experiencing hypocrisy <laughs> before I even came out of the, the womb. And that was 1983. And this was just as this issue of abortion was becoming the wedge issue. So I was looking back at this. In 1972, Gallup did a poll. 58% of Democrats and 68% of Republicans agreed that, quote, decisions to have an abortion should be made solely by a woman and a physician. So that meant more Republicans were pro-choice at that time than Democrats. And, you know, you look at the Ford administration. Ford's wife was pro-choice. His vice president was pro-choice. Uh, Joe Biden in 1982 voted for a constitutional amendment that have, that would have let states overturn Roe versus Wade. So this issue is just like not as polarized politically as it is now. Like obviously it's always has been an issue that has a lot of moral weight to it, but it wasn't so neatly divided within our political parties. But, you know, snap your fingers a decade later and it is the biggest wedge issue we've had since probably slavery in this country and civil rights. And I'm often wondering why this is the case. And I think it's it's part of the reason why we can't have these conversations about this, because most people I know on the left uh, are it's they they don't trust. And I'm sure this goes both ways. They do not trust people on the other side to act in good faith on this issue. Uh, and so that's what makes this so hard. And I think that gets us to the Texas law. I think what, what frustrates people about the Texas law is not just that it uh, bans abortion after six weeks of pregnancy, but it also deputizes its citizens to carry out this law in kind of a clever way, basically uh, trying to make an uh, end run around the Constitution to say, like, look, like um, the way that the law works is if, if a state carries out a law, you can only sue 
when the state actor is is enforcing the law, like whether it's a state trooper or a bureaucrat in a state agency. But this law cleverly says you can't sue uh, – the, the, the state itself can't actually enforce this law. It has to be ordinary citizens and they can basically collect a bounty on anybody they go after who's having abortions. So putting aside a second like the question of – abortion itself and saying, like, do you like this mechanism? Because I do think this canon has been already started to be used by liberals to then do things like try to ban guns or, you know, maybe go after religious freedoms. No, I don't like this mechanism at all. Um, I, as a libertarian and just sort of generally really dislike creating a culture where we're deputizing narcs and snitches. Um, (laughs) I don't think that's a healthy thing for um, all of us to be in a republic together and to be snitching on each other like that. Uh, I think it really leaves open a lot of opportunity for abuse. We actually see this a little bit um, with, interestingly, like, I know it's a weird example, but like sex offender registries and um, like basically uh, statutory rape problems where basically you could have in a in a really conservative community a teenage boy and a teenage girl who are dating, but perhaps their ages fall ever so slightly outside of the bounds of the appropriate age difference um, outlined by that state's sort of age of consent laws. A lot of the times you have a parent, maybe a very conservative parent, who discovers that these kids are having sex and then attempts to make sure that there are legal consequences for the man under this sort of these sort of statutory rape statutes, which then ultimately can get the the teenage boy who is having sex with a teenage girl on a sex offender registry for a very, very long time. I know that's a weird example, but I almost see it as like it's not the two uh, participants in the act- in the actual act that have the problem with what's happening. It's some other actor who is then in- inserting themselves and creating really, really severe consequences for somebody else who voluntarily consented to this. Um, that We've seen that abused in that arena so much before, and I think we have an opportunity to see that uh, <laughs> with this legal mechanism. I think we also see stuff like that when it comes to disputes over sanctuary cities. I think also gun rights, that's a, that's a great example. I sort of worry about what happens when we send the message to people that they are these sort of on the ground um, vigilante enforcers of these types of laws because we have a lot of political disagreement in this country. And I do not want a culture where we're trying to um, call ICE and rat out immigrants, uh, illegal immigrants who live in somebody's neighborhood or stitching on somebody for having a gun safe and guns that are kept legally lawfully in their house uh, or, you know, teenagers consensually having sex with each other because a conservative parent dislikes that that is happening in their home. Like, yeah, that's a really, really bad thing. And we see that possibly being extended to all kinds of areas. We should be very concerned. Yeah. And we saw that just to, to close the loop on this. This is now happening both ways in February. Uh, you know, leaders in California through their weight behind legislation that would let private citizens sue firearm manufacturers and distributors if they violate the state's assault weapons ban and other gun control measures, basically mimicking the Texas law. And so we will keep an eye on this. Now to my favorite topic of all, New York Mayor Eric Adams hasn't been shy about confronting the kind of progressive Democrat that he beat in November, confident that he came in with a mandate. But at least to some extent, progressives have been shy about punching back, searching for the right message. A new left-leaning alliance called the People's Plan thinks it can find it. And this was profiled in the political in political magazine just a couple days ago. Liz, let's take stock of this showdown. Do you think progressives will succeed in chipping away at Adams from the left? There's definitely an interesting dynamic going on here, which is that over the last two or so years, especially in a lot of urban areas, um, we've really seen a lot of uh, progressive defeats, a lot of progressive losses uh, in a way that can sometimes be very difficult to quantify. So it's important to not overstate that trend. 
But like right now we're seeing in a lot of urban areas um, significant crime uh, surges. What we're actually saying, and it's really difficult to talk about crime data in a way that's intelligent, we're seeing in a lot of places homicide is is surging. Austin, I know, is experiencing this. I think New York is also struggling with this. We're seeing violent crime surging in a lot of places. Well, actually, at the same time, property crime is decreasing in many cities. So the crime still feels major, although it's technically perhaps less frequent or smaller in number. Public spaces in many cities just... They, they have become less safe. They feel less safe. That's not imaginary, but we do have to be very careful with how we sift through that data. But at the same time that all of this was happening, we had the whole defund the police talking point and initiative. We had George Floyd-related protests and some property destruction that followed that. We had a lot of conflict uh, where people were really at loggerheads over where do we go forward? How how do we uh, execute on issues of public safety? Uh, what should our response to crime be? And I think we're we're in a moment where a lot of the progressive solutions that are being offered are not very appealing, not very viable. And I think the fact that Adams was elected at all, uh, though I do have some concerns with how uh, sort of cozy he is with cop unions. That's not something that I really particularly like as a libertarian. But I do think to a degree, this is a sort of referendum on a lot of the much more radical parts of the progressive left. And this is a response by New Yorkers who are basically saying, hey, our public spaces need to be safer. We yeah. need somebody who's going to prioritize that and take that seriously. Yeah, I think my simple way of looking at this right now is I wouldn't want to be accused of a crime in a red state and I wouldn't want to be a victim of a crime in a blue state. Uh, and <laughs> that's basically where I come down to it right now. <laughs> like in a lot of these politicians that I've coached over the years have zero interest in looking out for people who are victims of crime. And part of it is because a lot of them don't know a lot of people who are victims of crime because they come from fancy areas, right? If you look at a lot of the people quoted in this story that are criticizing Eric Adams, they're coming from places like Park Slope and the Upper West Side and all that, which incidentally were the uh, parts of the city that voted against Eric Adams. There's this talking point on the left that like Eric voted Adams- voted for more progressive candidates. Yeah, okay. yeah, like the Maya Wiley coalition, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, what's interesting to me is that the so-called progressive left, right? We call it the progressive left, right? They, they almost there's almost this group of people within democratic politics who get to control the terminology. But what they mean by progressive is their version of progressivism, which is this white liberal brownstone New York version of progressivism, which was embodied in, in Bill de Blasio, a guy who you know spent like a drunken sailor who you know showed up to work every day at like 11 o'clock after you know working out um who didn't find didn't know a spending plan he didn't like including you know handing over tons of money to his wife to just basically burn on a stupid mental health initiative that didn't work who was running around the country running for office and then commentating on MSNBC right up until the pandemic struck New York City you know who couldn't make government work for the most vulnerable and then people wonder why the the person who comes in after him voters were asking for something different somebody who's energetic somebody who comes from the community who might, who has a different theory of what it means to be progressive. And so now you have this coalition, this, this so-called People's Plan coalition, um, who are taking offense to this. And I find it really funny. Like this article quotes the, the head of the Working Families Party who says we should expect more from this mayor. This is the party, by the way, who gave me my first job in politics. And I've worked with them. I've given them tons of money through different political action committees. I know these people really well. They were huge cheerleaders of de Blasio. And all of a sudden, now they want to say they want to expect more from a mayor. Meanwhile, they were largely silent during his years when the most vulnerable were ignored in this city. Uh, never mind that. You can read this uh, People's Plan Party, by the way. And of course, they use the term Latinx, which we've already addressed. Uh, but they also claim that they're going to center uh, power at the margins, right? They're, they're looking out for the downtrodden, they claim, right? 
Now, how are they going to do that? Well, one thing they want to do is go after charter schools, right? So uh, charter schools, which in New York City are non-profit public schools, uh, they don't want to give data to charter schools to recruit students. They want to halt co-locations, which is essentially how charter schools in New York City, they, it's New York. Like, space is so expensive. So these non-profit public schools are given access to unused or underutilized public school space within the city. That's huge. They also want to make sure that charter schools don't get uh, more money. So they, they make a the spurious claim that charter schools get more money in New York City. And to me, I find this is a travesty. These are people who are, it's almost like they're, they're magicians trying to distract you and saying, hey, I'm for the downtrodden. But in the end, they're actually advocating for the privileged in this city because it's not the privilege you go to these charter schools. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, wealthy people in New York City already have school choice. Um, they have school choice by nature of having enough money to be able to choose whether they send their children to private schools and they really get their pick of the litter in terms of which private schools. We have a ton of diversity in that arena in New York. Um, but they get to decide whether they choose neighborhood public schools uh, or whether they choose all these private school options. Yeah, they don't call that choice, though. Yeah, right? yeah, they don't, they don't identify it as school choice, but that is fundamentally what it is. And I think it's really important that those of us who are advocates for charter schools and for educational choice call it out and say rich people already have that. What we want to do is democratize it and, and expand it to make it so that poor people also have that access to school choice in the exact same way that rich people do, or in as, as good a way as, as we could possibly simulate, because obviously their options won't be totally the same. But like this is so this is something that, you know, you see so many wealthy families in New York choosing private school for their kids and and exercising uh, their their ability to choose different places. It's really, really disturbing to me that they want to deny poor people the ability to do that. Yeah. And let me just give you some numbers on this. Uh, there are about 180,000 students in New York City charter schools. 49% of them are black, 41% Hispanic, 80% economically disadvantaged, 18% are students with special needs. These are schools and there are 163,000 on the wait list waitlists um, as of last time I checked. And these are schools that dramatically outperform their traditional counterparts. So in 2017, Stanford has a research arm called Credo, which both sides of this pro and anti-charter debate use as their sort of gold standard. And basically what they do is say, we're going to statistically match every student. So basically they say is, hey, if you're you know, an 11-year-old kid from a certain neighborhood of certain economic background and yada, 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 they find a match that goes to the traditional public school and one that goes to the charter school. And they say, how do you two perform relative? relative to each other. What did they find in 2017? They found that in a 180-day school year, students in charter schools get the equivalent of 23 extra days of reading and 63 days extra math. Not actual days, but just by being in those charter schools, the effect is that strong as if they were in school 63 more days in math. Not only did they find that out, but they found that um, students in charter schools who are economically disadvantaged, poor kids in charter schools, are actually outperforming every kid in traditional public schools on average, so just kids who are not economically disadvantaged, and they're on par in reading. So uh, this is the great equalizer, and this is from a group of people who are always accusing the rights of climate denying, right? Like they're not looking at the science, they're not looking at the data, and to me this is the left-wing equivalent of um, climate change denial. Like the data is so stark, it's so obvious that these schools are working for kids, uh, but people on the left don't want to acknowledge it because they're cozy with the teachers' unions, they like their neighborhood school, and they have a certain view of what school choice is uh, that's really narrow and very convenient for their worldview. It's also just very politically pop unpopular. We've seen this over the course of the pandemic to push back on teachers' unions and the power that they, that they hold and to call out some of their incredibly dirty tactics. That is not something um, that 
curries much favor in in the public eye. People are afraid of doing that. But you look at the degree to which teachers unions have in many cases not covered themselves in glory over the course of the pandemic and basically um, really lobbied for all kinds of COVID cautious policies, some of which at a certain time seemed excessive, especially once teachers basically got in the very front of the line, front of the queue for vaccination. And so that was the point at which I think many parents had this sort of, we had this implicit social contract of like, oh, well, okay, if we bump them up in terms of how quickly they can get vaccinated, the concept will be that we're societally prioritizing getting kids back into the classroom because we recognize how much learning loss has happened over the course of the pandemic. That was sort of the deal that we thought we made, the bargain. And then teachers unions go back and say, no, that's not what we're going to do. And we're going to continue doing in many areas, not Chicago, all areas. especially. Yeah, Chicago. We saw this in L.A. We saw this uh, a decent bit in New York. And it's it's difficult because it's like I think both you and I look at this data and say this learning loss is not insignificant and it's not going to be the rich kids bearing the brunt of this. Yeah. We want to close today with an update on the war in Ukraine. The city of Mariupol has been under siege and a constant downpour of Russian artillery for three weeks now. Russian forces are seeking to take the whole southern coastline, but for the time being, Ukrainian forces have kept hold of Mariupol. Over 100,000 people have fled that city alone and more than 3 million have fled Ukraine altogether, triggering an immediate refugee crisis that dwarfs anything Europe's seen in modern memory. Today, the U.S. announced it would take 100,000 of those refugees Liz, I know you wanted to see more initiative from the White House on this. What's your reaction to today's announcement? I will always give credit where due. I am not a big fan of the Biden administration, but I absolutely respect this decision that they've made. I hope to see much more of it in the future, uh, not just for Ukrainian migrants, but also for Northern Triangle migrants who are fleeing to the U.S., for people trying to cross people, people from Mexico trying to cross the southern border. We should absolutely do this. Letting 100,000 new people into the U.S. is absolutely the right thing to do. Let's do the same thing next week. Let's add another yeah. 100,000 next week and maybe the week after like, after that. You know, like that's that's sort of how I look at immigration policy. And um, and just to pause there, because people might be confused, because I, I think, a, you know, some people, I think, lump all people that they view as right. And I know you don't necessarily think of yourself as right wing, but um, libertarians, traditional conservatives, et cetera. You know, you are pro-immigration, right, which I think separates you from people who, you know, I think traditional Republican voters, which I think a lot of people would kind of lump you in together with. Oh, 100 um, percent. This is, to me, not just a moral imperative. It is also good public policy. Uh, and I, th- I think arguments on both sides are very compelling. In terms of the moral imperative, I think of this as we are so lucky. Some of us are so lucky to be born in this country with American passports. I I received this not by anything that I did, um, but rather because 100 years ago, my ancestors decided to get the hell off the Russian tundra and get on a ship and, you know, take on a very risky journey and never see some of their family members again in order to give their children hopes of a better life. And I am the beneficiary of that. And I can never stop being grateful for that type of thing. Lots of people don't have that. Um so there, there's that whole moral side of things. And I'm also uh, influenced by the fact that my my two littlest siblings uh, were adopted and, and therefore sort of immigrated to the U.S. And my family has been built by immigration in a lot of ways, uh, both very distant and uh, more immediate to me. Um, so I have a little bit of a, a sentimental attachment to our immigration stories. But then also from a public policies perspective and like a very even like brutish, Randian type way of looking at this. How dare the state get involved and insert itself into voluntary transactions between people where an employer is saying, I want to be able to hire to employ the best candidate for the job, and they happen to not have a U.S. visa or they happen to be from this other country? 
the government shouldn't insert itself into that that uh, decision making process or say a university wants to take on the best possible applicant uh, for a given research department. They shouldn't be limited by nature of where that person was born or or what language they speak or where they've received the majority of their education. I think it's really, really important that we have a legitimate marketplace that allows people uh, of all different passports to compete with each other. And the fact that the U.S. government really limits a lot of that, I see as a huge problem. And where do you where do you draw the line on this? Would you just have no borders at all? Or do you think like just you just want to have more people cross? Well, I think the way I would handle this, because. The open borders thing, I think, sort of is like a weird distraction where people are sort of it's it's very unclear what people are talking about when they talk about that. The thing that I would do more immediately is almost like what I was what I was gesturing at of like, okay, in terms of letting people in who are seeking refuge, we have a lot of capacity to continue to do a lot more of that. So we can majorly up those numbers. Then we can also look at uh, visa wait times for for highly skilled workers, especially those coming from India and China. And we can basically say, hey, the fact that you're waiting in a backlog for, in some cases, decades in order to receive a working visa to come to the U.S., that's a huge problem. And we need to speed up the processing of that. We probably need to up the quotas there. Then you also look at, uh, in many cases, and I hate I hate to generalize by country, but but like lower skilled visa recipients. Uh, people that's a term that got Eric Adams in trouble a yeah, couple sure. weeks ago. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. crucify me for this. But the general, like if people are going to fixate on that. I think as there's plenty the general... of other things in this podcast that people will come after you <laughs> before that. That's it. Sure. But I mean, people people basically coming from, from Mexico or from, from the Northern Triangle, from a lot of Central America, I think we also need to be doing a much better job of letting them in. I mean, you go around all different parts of the U.S. right now and you see help wanted signs indoors. Fundamentally, there are a bunch of people who are willing to work for relatively low wages, which I know some people are uncomfortable with. But there are people looking to hire people for relatively low wages, for relatively less skilled positions. And there are a bunch of people sitting right across the border who want to come to situations of greater safety in order to amass more prosperity, in order to work hard for themselves and their families. And we're denying them the ability to cross the border and engage in that voluntary transaction where both parties will benefit. Yeah. To me, I mean, that's there's an incredibly clear case for why we would be better off this way. I do also think it's worth taking the concerns of the right seriously. They have, uh, I think, I think we sort of don't have a very unified national consensus as to how highly we prioritize assimilation and what that looks like. Yeah, people hate the word, you know. And I, yeah. I, I think to me, you know, I have a personal experience with assimilation, which is my my dad is from India. He was an immigrant and escaped poverty in many of the ways you describe. And my mom uh, is uh, a white woman from New York City, but who you know who's the granddaughter of immigrants from Poland and Ukraine. And they uh, they like my grandfather, whose own parents were immigrants. Uh, wouldn't talk to my mom for a period of time because she married an Indian guy. And it took time. Like, he learned, like, he had to evolve and all that. And I think about that when people talk about assimilation. It's like, do I think that my that was great that my grandfather reacted that way? No, but but it was totally, like, predictable in the situation. Like, and, like, people have to work through this kind of stuff. And if we want to call it assimilation, if we want to call it learning, if we want to call it, like, some kind of gradual, you know, um, you know, some kind of gradual experience where people come to, to a greater understanding of each other's cultures, whatever. But I do think it, it's notable that it was one guy, my dad, versus a thousand. Like if, if you dropped a thousand people from my dad's village in Travis and Staten Island in the 1970s, it would have gone way differently. And so I think like calibrating these numbers is really important. And I think I think one could be for a very careful approach of bringing people together 
while also still being like very inclusive. Yeah. One of the things I actually really dislike uh, when I hear the left talk about Scandinavia and how the U.S. ought to emulate Scandinavian countries is the fact that there's honestly a lot of Scandinavian xenophobia and and obviously Islamophobia, which is a whole part of that. Um, and so these aren't really these idyllic paradises the way that people sometimes claim they are. They can be quite unwelcoming to immigrants and to foreigners. Sweden is, I think, the most reasonable on immigration, so credit where due. But Norway and Denmark tend to be extremely hostile, letting very few foreigners in. Um, I really dislike how a bunch of Americans are willing to hold these countries up as great examples and great examples of well-functioning welfare states. Because, I mean, we're talking about small, relatively homogenous, rich countries. Our country, on the other hand, has managed to be pretty rich and developed despite not being homogenous at all and despite incorporating people from all different starting levels, wealth and class-wise. So I actually think America's success, when you put it in those terms, is even more impressive. And that so many Scandinavian wealth, social welfare policies are absolutely useless to talk about in relation to America because our problems are fundamentally different in nature. And I'm glad they're fundamentally different because I'm glad from a public policy standpoint that for many years in our country, uh, you know, over the course of uh, pretty much up until like the 80s and 90s, when we really began to, to slow our roll very, very majorly on this, um, you know, we we made, I think, the right call in terms of basically saying, hey, our welfare state is not going to look the way that Scandinavia will. Um, our ability to provide social services will not look the same. But what we will be doing is we will be bringing in a lot of different people, fleeing all kinds of different circumstances and bring them into the U.S. and and basically allow them to, to work and to try to make their way in America. And so I really think when we discount uh, that part, we're we're doing so again at our own peril, and I'm I'm just not sure where we go from there. I think we have to fundamentally rejigger and shift the way that we look at this, and I think we need to really stop idolizing countries that don't share what I think are our values in this way. Yeah, well, Libertarian Liz, it's always a pleasure. Uh, thank you for being with us. Uh, for our listeners, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back uh, to our normal schedule next week. Uh, if you love what you're hearing, make sure to rate and subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And, you know, you helped us uh, crack the top 50 in Apple Podcasts for Politics last week. We're, you know, growing audience tremendously every week. And so one thing you could do for us if you really love what we do is, you know, say something on social media about how much you love this show. If you tag The Lost Debate, or Lost Debate on Instagram, Twitter, etc. We'll retweet you. Or if you tag me at Rabia M. Gupta, I'll do the same either on Instagram or Twitter. Spread the word. Uh, and we'll be right back here next week on Tuesday evening. 